Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Coming up... Pakistan has watched Afghanistan with extreme interest for decades. I I would go as far as to say that they're frankly the villain of the piece here behind the Taliban. First thing we need to see is a focus on the Scottish economy rather than a focus on some of the other peripheral interests, such as independence, that that unfortunately has distracted the Scottish government for far too, the SNP for far too long. We have this convoluted uh, fiscal framework, which is long overdue for review, and as an outcome of that review, I hope that there are more powers come to Scotland, which allow you to increase them or to reduce them or to rebalance the economy in ways that are more beneficial for Scotland. Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Very warm welcome to the latest edition of my Herald podcast. Now, later in the show, we'll cast a quizzical eye over Scotland's economic prospects and new figures out. But one item has completely dominated the global news this week. It is, of course, Afghanistan, the Taliban takeover, the, the fate of the Afghan people, families, children, refugees, and, of course, the political recriminations both in Afghanistan and the wider region and around the world. Now, in a moment, I'll get the very latest from David Pratt, the Herald's Foreign Affairs editor. But first, we thought we'd bring you a few reflections on the crisis, a bereaved husband, then the prime minister, and then the Asia director of Save the Children. My wife is there. I got recently married and she's there. And my cousins, my my uncles, aunties, they're all there. And my cousins and uncles, they're all musicians and they are very active and famous musicians in the country well at the moment they don't say anything they're all so scared and shocked because the the collapse was so suddenly we wasn't expecting that collapse the collapse that soon and that quick well yeah yeah my my wife was actually amongst that 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 the people at the airport yesterday and uh, there was some firings and she was just sitting next to the window window was broken and she got injured yeah, because of the glasses. So because of these stories that we heard about these things, she's very scared and I'm also very scared here. And uh, at the moment, we don't have so much choice. And I hope there is some kind of decision is made in favor of uh, people like us in difficulties. And uh, she, she, She's entirely right. We will not... Uh, be sending people back to uh, to Afghanistan, and nor, by the way, Mr. Speaker, uh, will be will be allowing people to come from Afghanistan to this country in a, in an indiscriminate way. We want to be generous, but we must make sure that we look after our own uh, security. And uh, over the over the coming weeks, we will redouble our efforts, uh, working uh, with others to protect the UK homeland and all our citizens and interests from any threat that may emanate from a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, from terrorism to the narcotics trade. Uh, at, the, at, the, at the moment, the situation in the pretty much uh, whole of Afghanistan is very dire. And uh, I said earlier that uh, because of drought, uh, the number of people who do not have access to sufficient food uh, has increased tremendously. We, we, we have 14 million people in uh, uh, in Afghanistan who require uh, food assistance that is the highest number in a, in a, in a, in more than a decade that was Hassan Noor the Asia director of Save the Children the same John Amber, David Pratt Adult 
Foreign Affairs editor, really poignant reflections there, David, upon the, the condition on the ground. Any, any latest information on, on that, on the condition on the ground in Afghanistan? Well, from what I'm hearing, Brian, things are beginning to unravel a little bit. I mean, I think you would expect quite an increase in tension given the events of the last week or so. But at the moment, there is uh, certainly evidence that the Taliban are actually, I mean, it's coming both from the UN and from what I'm hearing on the ground, that they are beginning to to track down um, so-called collaborators or people who mm. have worked for the for the um, coalition in the past. That's um, directly contrary to the assurances they gave when they first took power, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And I think this is something we need to watch, the, this dual face, if you like, of the Taliban, you know, which they are masterful at in terms of, presenting as a political kind of position on the one hand and conducting affairs on the ground in a slightly different uh, way. And what about the, the, the other assurances they've given, the assurances about attempting a stable government, the assurances about, in particular, the, the rights of women? Well, again, it's early days in that respect. You know, We're waiting to see how this plays out. I think my biggest fears at the moment, Brian, is, is that it's it's such a tinderbox situation that it wouldn't take much really for things to seriously start to unravel. There's been a lot of shooting around the airport today, as it has been mm-hmm. the last few days, but it has increased. Um, and I think you know, women, the ethnic minorities, those that obviously felt threatened from the outset, will be feeling even more threatened at the moment. Meanwhile, there are in tandem there are these political negotiations ongoing. Some of the the old guard, if I can call them that, the Hamid yeah. Karzai, former president, Abdullah Abdullah, are meeting Taliban leaders um, to discuss the kind of shape and form of the future government. So we have to watch to see how that plays out. So there's a bit of a race on there, I think. It would be good. I think it would be um, a welcome scenario if the politics sort of settled things down a little bit before perhaps events in the ground got out of hand. We're also seeing traces of protest at the moment, Brian, against the Taliban. And we saw it in Jalalabad a few days ago, which is, is remarkable, really. But the, the, the immediately preceding government has basically fled the scene. You're, you're talking about other figures, aren't you, involving themselves in an attempt to maintain some degree of stability, some degree of what passes for continuity. That's correct. I mean, there have been big players, former president, obviously, yes, indeed. Pres- former That's presidential right. candidate. So, you know, these are um, high power, high you know, level brokering that's going on there. And, and the sooner that they, they, they talk things through with the Taliban and get some kind of calm on it, the better it is. But, but if I, have, I think in the first sense, I have immediate concerns over that unravelling I mentioned on the ground. You know, anybody who's been in these situations, and I have on numerous occasions, Mm-hmm. It doesn't take much for things to get completely out of hand, you know, and the shooting to really begin. The other thing we're not seeing, of, of course, is what is going on in remote provinces in Afghanistan. I was going to ask that, yeah. C- yeah. Can, there, can there be a distinction between what is being said centrally to the world in Kabul and what is actually happening in, in Kandahar and, and, and individual areas around Afghanistan? Absolutely. We're seeing it through the optic of Kabul at the moment, which in a sense mm-hmm. is the stage in which the Taliban are performing, if I can put it yes. uh, in that way. Um, what we're not seeing is what's happening in the provinces and the way they're cracking down there, these field commanders in those areas. That should be of concern, particularly if there is uh, this are signs of protest rising up in these areas. Something else I should mention too, Brian, is that yes, there right. are, beyond those protests, there are signs of um a resistance, perhaps, fledgling resistance emerging. Because one of the things I don't think people are aware of is that despite the fact that the vast majority of the country is now controlled by the Taliban, 
there is a small territorial area up in the north, the Panjshir mm-hmm. Valley, home to the legendary Ahmed Shah Massoud, who fought the, uh, the guerrilla war against the Russians. His son, who goes by the same name, um, put out a, a statement on the Washington Post yesterday asking for international help and rallying supporters, Panjshiris, some remnants of the special forces and other uh, menfolk who may be inclined to fight. So we could be seeing the beginnings of a kind of small-scale fledgling resistance in the north. Is, is that something of an, an ethnic resistance against the predominantly Pashtun? Well, the, yes, the in, in, indeed, indeed, the um, Panjshiris are predominantly Tajik. And they will be joined by ethnic minority groups like the Hazaras, of course, mm. who are persecuted by the predominantly Pashtun Taliban, you know, and have every reason to join that resistance. There is a historical, um, shall we say, tradition of alliance between the, the, the Hazara groups and, and the Tajiks, yeah. Masud's people and other groups there when they fought the Soviets. So there's almost a sort of resurrection, a hint of a resurrection of that. You know, I should I should stress that it's just a fledgling hint at the moment, but it was quite a statement in the Washington Post yesterday by yeah. Masood. Well, is it possible, before we move on to global recriminations, is it possible to give any sort of forecast of whether this this will be different from the 1990s Taliban? Is, is it a different being, a, a different sort of organisation? Initial reactions would suggest that it is. But again, okay. I stress it's early days. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think there may be two Taliban's here, as we say, the one that's on yeah. the public stage and the one that's operating behind the scenes. It could even result in a split in the Taliban. Watch that space. That's something that's not being talked about at the moment. There could be those commanders in the field who feel as though, oh, you know, the the leadership are moving away from the kind of original doctrines and kind of ethos and strategy. Could become frustrated with that, but that's further down the line. The main priority at the moment is the unravelling in Kabul. Yeah, I mean, ju- ju- let, let's talk now about uh, you know implications elsewhere, implications over the border in in in, in Pakistan. To, to what degree are, are individuals in Pakistan, the Pakistan state generally, they must be watching things with with extreme interest in in, in Afghanistan. Pakistan has watched Afghanistan with extreme interest for decades. Yes. I, I would go as far as to say that they're frankly the villain of the piece here behind the Taliban. The Taliban would not ex- yeah. would not exist without Pakistan support, yeah. without the support of the Inter-Services Intelligence Director of the Pakistan Intelligence Services, who fund, support, provide sanctuary for the many fighters that, that operate in Afghanistan. Indeed, many of the fighters in Afghanistan, Taliban fighters, are actually Pakistanis. That's something a lot of yeah. people don't realise. So, And they've long wanted a government in, uh, in Kabul that they can manipulate and handle. So the Pakistanis will be watching this particularly closely at the moment, as will indeed China and Russia, who have already been talking to the Taliban. And let, let's talk about uh, the, the US as, as well, the US president looking, well, let, let, let's go no higher than uncomfortable, but certainly looking pretty uncomfortable. But when, when it, it would appear that they got the intelligence wrong about the degree of resistance that they would be to, to the Taliban once, once the US troops withdrew. And he's now having to say, isn't he, that the, the US troops may have to stay there at the very, at the very minimum to protect uh, US citizens and allies. Well, again, that is a potential sort of paraffin to the fire. I mean, there is a deadline there for the withdrawal of U.S. troops. And the Taliban, I think, would take a rather dim view if that deadline is not met, you know. I mean, it was interesting watching Zabiullah Mujahid, the the Taliban spokesman at the press conference the other day. When I was last in Kabul and spoke to him on the phone, as many journalists did, without ever seeing his face, he constantly reiterated that point, that that deadline must be met, U.S. and foreign troops must be out of the country. Now, Biden and the administration might say they're only keeping them there to secure the safe passage of 
of uh, Western yeah. individuals and, and, and people they're trying to evacuate. But, you know, it will be interesting to see how much flexibility the Taliban give them in that capacity. Well, uh, yeah, because they are in charge. They are in charge, aren't they? There's no question. Yeah, and, and again, I think that. that's why we have to be careful here that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't, as I, as I was writing, actually, over the last sort of two days, you know, we're going to be faced with a situation, uh, depending on what face the Taliban eventually present to the world, whether the mask comes off and it's something rather horrible underneath, as we know they're capable of. Mm. Um, but we will have to, at some point, if shake hands with them, not necessarily apologise yeah. and shake hands, but we may yeah. have to talk to them in the future. That's the realpolitik. It's the realpolitik that the West will have to engage with. And frankly, it's the realpolitik the Taliban face with because they cannot function and run a government without outside assistance as a pariah state. That's a simple yeah. fact of life for them. So it's still early days, but you know there's an awful lot happening on the ground that we need to keep an eye on. Let's talk about the impact on the UK government. Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, in, uh, you know, by comparison with the, the global uh, calamity of, of, of these matters, it's, it's a minor matter, but it is nonetheless a matter that is causing some problems for, for the Foreign Secretary. Could you explain that to, to, to our listeners and viewers if you could? Well, I think it's a huge embarrassment. Uh, I mean, obviously, Raab was on a holiday. I mean, they seem to have been, been caught with the pants down, if you pardon yeah. the expression. It's not just a failure of intelligence that the Western... Uh, US-led coalition had in Afghanistan recognised what was unravelling before their eyes. But, you know, the UK is part of that coalition, a big part of that coalition, and, you know, they've um, dropped their guards. And it would suggest that the politicians here have doubly dropped their guards. That's yeah. been evident in terms of the response at the moment. Um, you know, I think it looks bleak. This is a bad moment for them. It's also a very, very poignant, sharp reminder, despite the blustering of um, you know the Tory government that they are uh, Britain is still a power to behold across the world. This yeah. has shown it in a stark light. Let's be candid about that. You know, and indeed I think the West will be reassessing its its entire position over that. We've had a number of commentators on that recently. David, how can I put this gently? I mean, I, I've covered news matters for rather a long time. You've covered foreign affairs for a, a fair wee while as well. Did you ever think we'd be back to this twenty years on? From, from the Taliban being being cast well, from power? Well, the funny thing is, Brian, 40 years ago when I first went to Afghanistan, you know, during the Soviet era and covering the war there, if anyone had told me that the uh, Mujahideen, as they were then called, yes. having got rid of the Soviets, would eventually be fighting, or a form of them would be fighting the Americans and the British who supported then the Mujahideen, although the right. Taliban are an entirely different entity, I would have yeah. said, you've got to be joking. So, you know, anything is possible in this situation. It doesn't come as a surprise to me at all. I think it's come as a surprise in terms of the speed, the rapidity, the failings, but it doesn't come as a surprise. Afghanistan, as I've learned over four decades, Brian, is full of surprises. David, thank you very, very much indeed. Great to have you on this podcast. And, of course, we, we'll you. keep you up to date. David will keep you up to date in the Herald. We'll keep, to, keep you up to date during this podcast. Indeed, if there are any developments from Afghanistan, so watch the hell for that coverage. Meanwhile, David, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for that. Let, let's turn now from Afghanistan back home. Let's turn now to the Scottish economy. Some new figures out that prompted a debate about the nature of, of our current economy, the, the, in the, about the issue of growth, and about, as ever, the issue of independence. I'll be getting a, a discussion on that with two senior politicians in a few minutes. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by my Herald colleague, uh, David Ball. David. We got the latest jazz figures, didn't we? That's government expenditure revenue for Scotland. 
and we got some figures on tax. Bring us up to speed with those uh, two, if you would, please. Yeah, so the annual figures, which were um, published yesterday, um, which take account of the first year of the pandemic, um, showed Scotland had a deficit between what is raised in taxes and that spent on public spend, uh, public services of $36.3 billion, which is a, a huge deficit, obviously. Yeah. Uh, the biggest since these um, figures have been compiled. It's more than double the deficit last year of $15.1 billion. Um, and that deficit is 22.4% of Scotland's GDP, with the UK rate at around 14%. Mm-hmm. So a UK rate that's high, but it's very high uh, by comparison with what we generally regard as being a 3% rate of, of being one of stability. But the Scottish rate higher still. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the white, it's fair to say that um, deficits across the global are being raised because of the pandemic. Yes, of course. Um, the widening of the deficit would be down to sort of more spending sort of on business support and extra NHS funding from the Treasury and yeah. um, plus obviously less less tax revenue coming in with the impact of the pandemic on jobs. Um, also, royal, uh, oil revenues fell from about yeah. 700 million to 550 million due again to the pandemic and sort of the falling value of oil, which obviously will contribute big, big time to sort of Scotland's economy. David, we got figures as well, uh, a bit previous to the, the JERS figures. figures suggesting the amount of money, and of course Scotland now has a different income tax system from the rest of the UK, the amount of money that is that is levied from taxpayers, but relatively uh, uh, comparatively little of that going directly to uh, productive public spending. Yeah, that's right. Some independent research, which was published at the end of last week, uh, found that in the last three years since these sort of tax reforms were made, mm. um, over 900 million um, in tax sort of uh, came in for a, a net benefit of just 170 million over the three years, um, and the study kind of revealed sort of risks inherent to sort of tax devolution. Yes. Where you mentioned we've got these sort of five bands compared to the three bands in the rest of the UK. Yeah. And basically, basically the Treasury claws back the rest because the the fiscal framework says that the, the, there will only be a, a comparable system to the, the, the previous system if Scotland's economic performance matches the rest of the UK, and it didn't. It fell short uh, in in terms of uh, growth per, per capita. Yeah, that's right. It essentially, is being sort of propped up by the by the Treasury and, and that that fiscal framework that you, that you mentioned, and the fiscal framework, of course, being reviewed at the present moment. David, th- thanks very much. Uh, hang hang on to those thoughts for a second. I'm delighted to be joined now to discuss all of that: the economy, growth, the future of Scotland. Joined by Richard Thompson, MP, who speaks on finance in the Commons for the SNP, a very senior front bencher. By Jamie Alco Johnson, MSP, also a senior. Conservative frontbencher in the Scottish Parliament, a spokesperson on business. Thanks to both of you for joining us. R- R- Richard, I understand the reasons for the, the JERS figures being bad, but they are absolutely dreadful. I mean, they, they, are, they, are, they are truly, truly appalling in terms of that. Uh, do you think, is, is it a blip? Is it something that can be turned around? Do we have to turn it around or can we live with that, that degree of deficit? Richard, Tom. Well, I think that's probably more a question for Jamie in terms of the, whether or not it's acceptable and you live with that, because it's all part of the argument that he, I'm sure, would seek to muster about pooling and sharing resources. But I think the point to make, as David touched on, is that uh, in the pandemic, all countries' deficits have increased. And it was absolutely right that they, that governments responded in that way, because without that uh, government effort to maintain demand in the economy, we would have seen very, very considerable economic ramifications. So in that respect, what these figures tell us is no different from what they would tell you about any other country, just about anywhere else in the world. Except, in except, this, except, that, they're, except that they're much higher. The figure, the, the UK figure of fourteen percent is the, is the we're told the highest in 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 Europe, and the Scottish figure within the UK is higher still at twenty two point four. 
kind of leads me on to my next point, thanks, Brent, which would yeah. be that if you were to carry out this exercise for all parts of the UK, you would probably find that just about every part of the UK was in deficit relative to London and the southeast of, of England. I mean, there are massive differences if you look at the Treasury PESA document in terms of public expenditure and spending between all the English regions. So through a combination of whatever their spending level is and what their, their economic activity is, uh-huh. you would find that most parts of the UK are in deficit relative to London and the southeast, so you would, which tells you would, a story would, of a very unbalanced UK economy. You, you would say that this is, the, 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 this is something that's happened on the UK's watch and is the UK's responsibility not the responsibility of the Scottish Government? No, I think it's very, very difficult to attribute responsibility when you don't have all of the tax uh, levers that you might use yeah. and all of the economic development levers. But what I'm saying is it paints a picture of a very, very unbalanced UK economy that does no credit to the, the current constitutional setup. Now, I'm sure we can and will get into a discussion about independence round about this and what this might tell us. But I think there are a number of problems with using JERS as a proxy for independence. We can maybe dig into some of the detail on that later. Let, but it is about... It does, it does assume that you change absolutely nothing from how right. the UK spends, and it does assume an awful lot of spending takes place Let's in Scotland, do and actually it doesn't. Thanks very much, Richard. Let's bring in Jimmy Halco-Johnson. What, what, it's, it's, the, it's the fault of... The, it's, it's happened un, under the UK Constitution. It's happened under the UK's watch. Yeah, Brian, I'm old and long enough uh, in the tooth to remember when Jers were the absolute example of why Scotland should be independent for most Scottish nationalists. And um, it, you only have to do a little uh, short Google search, and you can see... Um, fairly senior SNP uh, MPs and former ministers, then ministers, lining up to say, look, here are the JERS figures from 2000 or whatever, 2010 or whenever it happened to be, uh, and here's what they mean for Scottish independence. Um, you know, they demonstrate quite clearly, and, and I'm sure Richard won't want to, want to accept this, the, the massive difference between what Scotland spends and the resource uh, that, that we raise in tax. Um, and as a number of organisations, including some pretty important think tanks, have highlighted, if Scotland uh, was not part of uh, the United Kingdom, and uh, I say I voted very strongly against that uh, happening in 2014, we would be uh, we would be faced with a choice at the moment, and Richard's SNP colleagues would be faced with a choice of cuts to public services on top of what we're already seeing, or massive increases in tax on top of what we're already seeing. And let's look at the example that was highlighted um, by David in that. Uh, or raised by David in that, the increased uh, flexibility in taxation, part of the framework, saw Scots tax £900 million more uh, over three years for the benefit of £170 million worth of uh, available spending. That's pretty shocking. And yet that was something agreed by the UK government with the Scottish government. So, you know, we're not even seeing the benefits of that. Richard Richard Thompson, do you accept that there is, I, I, I accept the point, that JERS is notional, that JERS does not, it does not tell us it was never intended to tell us anything about what might precisely happen under independence. But do you accept, as in 2018, the SNP Growth Commission under Andrew Wilson accepted that there was a, that Scotland endured a deficit and that that would have to be tackled? Do you accept that? Uh- I don't think it has a deficit in all years, but clearly in recent years there has been a deficit, as there has been 
in, in many other Western economies. I mean, just by way of an example, I mean, the UK has been in deficit for 63 out of the last 75 years uh, post-war. So that it's not unusual for governments to run deficits. Governments are not like your household accounts where you have to keep them in balance. Governments, are, governments operate in a, a different way. But if you were to use... I mean, Gers was originally dreamt up by Ian Lang as a way in an infamous memo to John Major. He said this could score over all our opponents. And it was intended at that point as a way of trying to stymie devolution. So there is some yeah. irony in seeing, and I'll perhaps excuse Jamie from this, seeing uh, uh, devolutionist politicians it, it, it trying to now use it to stymie independence. It was always political, yeah. But I mean, yeah. you make the point there about, about the deficit, but, but if, if Scotland were to seek to join the European Union, the figure there would be 3% of GDP. Uh, of, of a deficit that would be regarded as, as acceptable for EU membership. We, we, have, we are not anywhere close to that and have not been for quite some time. Oh, so that's Euro membership, the difference between joining the Euro and joining the, 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 e, the EU itself. And as long as there is a, a, a path that has been mapped out in terms of how you can do that, then I'm sure that that is, a, that is a, a absolutely navigable. But I think to get into some, under the skin of some of these statistics, yeah. an awful lot of the expenditure that is attributed to Scotland and Jersey doesn't actually take place here. It's allocated in a population share irrespective as to the location of where that spend takes place, uh-huh. which grossly overestimates expenditure, for example, on defence. And it also means that there is a... We, we we don't get the the corresponding side of the balance sheet a reflection of the the tax so, benefits. So you're saying you're that. saying you're saying economies could be made. Uh, just talking about the, the the real rather than the notional Scottish um, statistics. You're saying that economies could be made that that would enable Scotland to get to get closer to to some form of balance. Well, well, I, well I could say that, but what I'm saying is that Gers, by its very nature, is an estimate of Scotland's devolved Scotland's position within the United Kingdom as it stands, and it overestimates expenditure that is allocated to Scotland, which doesn't necessarily take place here. And Jimmy, as a result of that, it underestimates the revenues that would take place. So as a snapshot of Scotland in the UK, it, it, it does what it does. As a proxy for the accounts of an independent Scotland, it doesn't tell us what people would like us to would, Jamie, would like you to believe. Them. Thanks, Richard. Jamie Halper Johnson. Yeah, I mean it's interesting listening. I mean, defence being a, a, a one of the issue that Richard raised. I mean, it raised. You know, one of the things I've heard again and again from SNP politicians is how in an independent Scotland more would be spent on defence in Scotland. Well, the suggestion from what Richard's saying there is that it wouldn't be. Um, that Scotland wouldn't spend as much on defence as, as the, the, the Jers figures. To remember, a Scottish government um, collated yeah. figures would actually be doing. So, you, you know, it, it seems to be a little little clutching at straws here and, and also slightly, slightly inconsistent with what the position has been of the SP of what, uh, SNP of what an independent Scotland would actually mean for spending. I mean, let, quite... let's, let, let's set Jers to one side for a minute. Let, let's talk, Jamie, about those figures that you raised, the tax figures, 900 million mm-hmm. levied additionally in tax, mainly on on uh, middle and higher higher earners, uh, a, a slight benefit. I think it was described as marginal benefit for those on on lower wages. What what does that tell us about the the actual condition of the of the Scottish economy right now? Well, I, I mean, it, te- it tells you that the, that the Scottish com- economy isn't performing. And what uh, Richard and others, I'm sure, when the SNP will say is that they don't have the levers of power in the Scottish government, and that um, and that's an age old argument. And yet we've seen uh, economy secretary after economy secretary being appointed. Uh, getting, you know, having um, delivering d- disappointing figures and then being moved on. I think we're on the fourth that I can remember uh, in the in the kind of last few years. Um, what it shows is that there is, a, I think, there is a huge amount of potential within the Scottish economy, but it is not being met by the policies or the delivery of um, the current Scottish government. And that's always been uh, the argument and the position of of my party that actually we can do so much better in Scotland. But what we have to do is support business. 
Um, and we've seen in the last few uh, the last few weeks are real issues around how the approach of the Scottish government and one which is a particular area of interest to me has been around tourism because it it's an area that I've been covering for for some time. How parts of important sectors of our economy simply aren't being listened to and supported as we go forward, and we need a Scottish government that's going to start doing that. Richard, what do you make of that? Uh, not much, Brian. Um, and just to go back to the point that, that Jamie was making about defence, the point I was seeking to make was that. Uh, I, Amounts are allocated to Scotland for defence which don't actually take place here, and that exaggerates the nature of any deficit or reduces the nature of any surplus. But I mean, I think in, in terms of the, the, the fairly limited in, income tax powers that yes. uh, the Scottish Government does have, uh, over half of people in Scotland are currently paying less in the way of income tax than they would if they lived elsewhere in the UK, and that's uh, those who are on lower incomes. So there has been a, a modest redistributive use of those powers, which I think... But, is but it is very modest indeed. It's, only, it's, it's very modest indeed. It's only 20 quid a year in some cases, Clutching in many cases. No, but it still makes a difference in terms of those on, on the lowest incomes. But yes, but only 100.01% million goes in productive spending, Richard. I'm sorry, I don't understand where that figure is coming from about productive spending and how that's being defined. Because you know, most all pretty much all government spend expenditure is intended to be productive. So if you can because nine hundred million is is raised in in is levied in additional taxation, and and of that, uh, the money is clawed back by by the treasury because the Scottish economic performance is, is falling short of the of the rest of the UK. Right, so in other words, that's about the function of the forecasting that's made in order to set the revenues for Scotland. Mm. I mean, I, I think that's probably misleading to call it productive spending, but there has to be that balancing mechanism. But again, I think that's one of the, the, the problems that we have. We have this convoluted uh, fiscal framework, which is long overdue for review. And as a, an outcome of that review, I hope that there are more powers come to Scotland in terms of borrowing powers, in terms of additional taxes, which allow you to increase them or to reduce them or to rebalance the economy in ways that are more beneficial for Scotland than they, than those powers are being used currently as, as you, part you, of the UK. So you can have a government that can be held fully accountable for the way in Scotland that they are used. You call it convoluted, Richard. I covered the, the conclusion of the, the negotiations over the fiscal framework and it was described as a triumph by, by John Swinney when he fought off what was, what was attempted then by the Treasury to make further constraints. And, and you know, uh, we, we are now facing a situation where it will be reviewed reviewed, you, you would want further powers. The Treasury are going to want further constraints. Well, it, it can be both a triumph at the time and convoluted in terms of the content of it. But yes. nevertheless, having, having, seen how, having seen how it's worked in practice, you know, I don't think there was ever anyone on the, the side of the Scottish Government or the SNP who would have been inclined to describe that as a triumph, who would nevertheless not have wanted more out of those negotiations. And hopefully in light of experience, particularly through the pandemic, where there has often been mismatches between where needs have been identified and when resources become available. Uh, and you can see that particularly over the furlough and the confusion that there was for some time over whether or not furlough would be allowed to be extended if it were needed. It's yeah. much better to have full control of policy and resources in the one government in Scotland so that we can get on with doing the things that we need to do. Jamie, you're, you're keen to come in. Jamie, one, one point I need to bring in. The, the argument that Richard is making there just tells you nothing about independence and, and the, as he describes it, convoluted fiscal framework tells you relatively little about independence as well. It doesn't tell you how an independent Scotland would would they would argue, your, your opponents would argue, thrive. Well, I, I go back to the point I made right at the beginning of this. It, it told us all about independence when they thought the figures um, were supportive of independence. It tells you nothing about independence now that they show how uh, important the union is to um, supporting public services in Scotland and contributing to making sure that some of the public services that so many people rely on 
um, are delivered. And despite um, an SNP government that's cutting uh, or putting a real squeeze on a lot of local authority um, spending. And, and I would just go back to that point about taxation, because I think it's a really important one. £900 million worth of tax taken out of pockets of people across Scotland. Yes, there are uh, some people who have benefited, benefited by a maximum of £20 per year. That's 0.1% um, for, the, for the lowest income households who are pay, paying tax. And yet some people are paying well over £1,500 more. Now, you could argue, um, as some uh, many will do, well, it's absolutely fine. They can afford to pay that. That's right. But this isn't uh, the people at the top uh, who are necessarily paying that. It's uh, some teachers and uh, doctors and others who are being asked to contribute to that. And when we want more and more people to go into these, these positions, um, that's a real decision that they have to make of whether Scotland is the place for uh, some of these people to actually to be because there is more tax being paid. Um, but I was just going to say, Brian, just, just to confirm very quick, just yeah, to, please, to yeah. reiterate, 900 million taken out of the pockets of Scots with only 170 million pounds available to go back into public services. That isn't a good deal. And yet that's one um, agreed by the SNP. Let's bring in David Ball here. David, I want to move on to, within the economy to another, another issue, the question of um, the, the continuing development of, of North Sea oil. Uh, David explained to us it, it's causing some contention, not least because of a potential field west of Shetland, isn't it? Well, that's right. I mean, the first case for independence back before the referendum relied heavily on the financial case anyway, on the, that oil revenue. It was seen as such a key thing to an independent Scotland. But not only now have we got the impact of the pandemic and the, the falling of the price of oil, but there's these environmental impacts where oil does need to be phased out. And then we can't have as much reliance on the oil at, to the economy and the jobs that come with that. There's a huge contention, like you said, with this this new uh, proposal near Shetland, where the SNP haven't really said they're going to oppose it, but have told the UK government to, to think again, basically. Thanks very much. J- Jamie Halker-Johnson, do you think that new field should go ahead? It is, of course, a UK government decision. Nicola Sturgeon has said it should be reassessed. Yeah, yes, I do think it should go ahead. And I think Nicola Sturgeon's fence-sitting to kind of, um, uh, I, don't, I was going to say lull the Greens into believing that she somehow... Uh, is strong on, um, uh, on on this issue is going to convince no one. I mean, what does reassess actually mean? She's not calling for it to, to, to go forward. She's not calling it to be stopped. As I say, I think it's a play really to try and get that, that elusive green deal over the line. Um, there are, uh, it's a huge amount of work going in by the oil and gas sector. We recognise, you know, from, uh, you know, I've worked with the, the sector in various roles for uh, over a number of years. And I, and I know that they recognise uh, that things are changing. We have huge uh, commitments to um, combat climate change. And the UK government obviously has put a £16 billion North Sea uh, uh, deal in there to, to try and transition out of um, oil and gas. But the simple factor is that the UK economy, uh, albeit uh, you know, a major economy, contributes, I think it's 1% of um, emissions. We have our part to play, a huge part to play. The idea of closing down development and, and then having to uh, import oil or import some of the products of oil, like plastics, which are used across, uh, across the economy, including in part of the renewables infrastructure, uh, just seems to be remarkable. And, you know, I represent the Highlands and Islands. We don't have the same density of people working within the sector as, uh, as perhaps in Richard's sector. But it's 100,000 jobs across Scotland. It's absolutely vital that we continue while also pushing forward with um, the other work that we can do in terms of challenging climate change. Richard, what's your take? Should the new field go out, new field production go ahead, or should the, the oil be left in the ground, as, as those who maybe take an environmental perspective would argue? 
Well, let me say a, a transition implies exactly that. It's not a binary tran- it's not a binary shift from one form of energy to another. Oil and gas is going to be with us for some time to come as fuel and as feedstock, as Jamie says. I think in terms of CANBO or any other field, I think it should be assessed on exactly the same basis as any new field. And I think Jamie's maybe slightly confused about this, but in the UK sector deal, which you referenced, um, which doesn't put a single penny on the table up front to help with energy transition, incidentally, one of the conditions it places on new oil field developments is that there is a climate change checkpoint whereby each new development is assessed against the government's climate change objectives in terms of meeting our continuing energy demand from, from hydrocarbons. And all that uh, the First Minister has done is to ask that fields which had previously been licensed but where work hasn't started, such yeah. as Cambo, should be subject to exactly the same assessment process. That seems to me to be a very pragmatic and sensible thing and I can't understand what, 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 why Jamie would be a, in favour of that kind of climate change check for new fields but not for fields that have yet to begin of production. What's your take? Do you believe that that field should, uh, that should go ahead in, into production? Well, fields, different fields have different characteristics. And as I say, if it passes the same benchmark as any other field is expected to pass, then there's, we have to be clear there is still a need to extract hydrocarbons and will be for some time. But at the same time, that's got to be part of a transition in terms of we're maintaining our energy security and meeting our energy needs, a transition to newer forms of energy, whether that's renewable electricity and newer applications for that, or as I very much fervently hope, a transition into the hydrogen economy, which we're very well placed to, to be part of in the northeast but, but, of Scotland. But, but Richard, as Jamie reflected there, as David Ball mentioned earlier, your party is, is perhaps about to sign a, a, a deal, an agreement, it's not a coalition, an agreement with, with the Greens and, and in, in the Scottish Parliament and in Scottish Government, and the Greens say leave it in the ground. Well, the Greens can say leave it in the ground. This is a decision which, you know, I wish it was a decision which rested with the Scottish Government. But I think when you're looking at the development of fields, let's assess them on the same basis. Let's have the level playing field of that climate change checkpoint and let's see which ones pass muster and which ones don't. Because it seems to me odd that you would have this climate change checkpoint for any new exploration but give a free pass to other fields which uh, were maybe discovered some time ago where no work has been undertaken. But you believe that has to be a field. Forgive me, you leave, there has to be a continuing future for oil, at least during that transition period. How many years might that be? Well, that that could be that could be for for you know up until the, the point where we're looking to be at net zero, uh, you know. So you know, and it also depends on how quickly we can get other forms. Twenty forty five beyond, yeah. you know, we're still going to need it as fuel and feedstock even beyond then. Okay. So I, I don't think it's possible to put a date on ending production because we will always need oil and gas. But I think the key is not to choke off the supply. We need that supply. What yeah. the key is, is to change the nature of the demand. And that is where the government money is needed up front. And we're sadly, the in, deal is lacking. Thanks. going to bring in Jamie in a second. But David Ball, remind us where we are on that deal with the Greens. It, it looks like it may be coming, coming to the boil a bit, doesn't it? Well, that's right. Um, the potential problem is the fact that the Greens members have to sort of agree to this before... Yeah before it is approved. But yeah, it is looking like in sort of the next few days we could at least get some developments on it, um, what that what that deal might contain. And then, yeah, into next week, hopefully before Parliament comes back, we should, we should know whether that deal is, is going to go ahead. Okay, now we'll be talking to the Greens, of course, in, in, in subsequent issue, issues of this this podcast, perhaps even next week with a bit of luck. But, 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 but Jimmy, you, you, your party is expressing concern about the, the implications of an agreement between the, the SNP and the Greens. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, this um, what we what we've perhaps labelled the coalition of chaos, the potential that uh, uh, a 
Scottish Green led or Scottish Green influenced SNP government, an SNP government that wasn't hasn't delivered enough for our economy, will be even more hamstrung by um, Scottish Green Party uh, that uh, will hold a balance of power, but will also be against some of the major problems. I mean, some of the sectors like oil and gas. I mean, I'm heartened that Richard is more supportive of uh, the oil and gas sector than some of his colleagues, like Tommy Sheridan, uh, Tommy sorry, Tommy Shepherd, and. Uh, <laughs> Steady, not Tommy, let, me, let me clarify, not Tommy, it's Sher, uh, Sheridan, Tommy, Shep- Tommy Shepherd um, and, uh, and others. Um, in, in his support for the, Northern, uh, the, the North Sea oil and gas, I think as a North East MSP, uh, MP, he really should be. But, um, but, you know, there's other projects like in my area, the A9 and uh, the A96 as well, these important uh, dueling projects that um, have been slow in their um, delivery anyway. And there's real concern that, um, uh, the, you know, the Scottish Greens will be opposing those because they have opposed those in the past. They, you know, they're not in favour of more road projects. So there's a number of areas like that um, that, uh, that we have real concern. Richard, what do, you, what do you make of that? What, what degree of influence would the Greens have over the, the, the SNP in government? Well, you are, after all, in Scottish Parliament, only one short of an overall majority. Yeah, and I think any deal would need to, to reflect that. But I'm just having a little chuckle to myself, the idea of Jamie um, talking about any coalitions of chaos, given the given the experience down at Westminster over the last few years when the when the, the DUP held the balance of power with the Conservatives over Brexit. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The SNP is, is very, very close to being in a, in a majority position. Now, it's, that means it's a parliament of, of minorities. I think uh, parliaments of minorities have worked very well uh, at times throughout the history of devolution. We've sometimes we've had formal coalitions, sometimes we've had minority government, and each has been appropriate to its circumstances. But I think the thing that has changed quite significantly from those heady days of uh, 2007 and the minority first SNP government is that it's... That, it's quite a fractious chamber from, from from my perspective. Now, you know, certainly Westminster's extremely fractious as well. But mm-hmm. in terms of the ability to strike deals with other parties, there are p- parties like the Conservatives who were able to do deals with the SNP over matters to do with budgets and LEs. And they seem to have completely retreated from wanting any kind of influence in favour of being able to write vitriolic press releases. But if, if personally, if I was in government, if I was in yeah. Hollywood, it's about power, it's about decisions, it's about getting something out of your manifesto. And the Conservatives don't seem to be remotely interested in that. Why, so, why well, a Green Deal now, Richard? J- Jamie, I mean, Jamie, please, sorry, go on. Jamie, go on, sorry, please. sorry, Brian, yeah. Why a Green Deal now? I mean, this last Scottish government was a minority government. Um, it didn't push ahead with some of its main priorities, but it uh, pushed ahead with others. It worked with the Greens and others to, to deliver. And I, I've, I have voted with the SNP and all parties on, uh, on amendments, bills and the like. So, so why a Green Deal now? Richard? Well, uh, you, you, you're, in the, you're, you're in that particular parliament, Jamie. But, you know, I, I think... You're in that particular party. So, so yeah, yeah. I mean, Joanne... Jo- well, and I, I'm, I'm the one that's been asked that particular question. So, you know, I think I think you'd have to take an assessment of what the, the, the politics are likely to be. And I mean, certainly I don't get the feeling that, that, that Douglas Ross is going to be in, in the mood to turn up to budget negotiations with a bottle of wine and a bunch of roses. And, you know, I certainly don't get the feeling that, you know, the Labour Party are in much of a position to negotiate. And certainly... I, you know, I think Willie Rennie has been quite a hostile, quite hostile in many respects to the Scottish Government. I'm not sure that Alex Cole Hamilton, after his coronation, will necessarily be a- any more favourable. So you have what to about, what look about, at politics Richard, there and the deals that are there to be done. Fine, I understand that. But Richard, what about Jamie's point that the, the Greens are, are, they say, leave the oil in the ground. OK, we've discussed that. But they also say uh, a halt on, on road developments like the A9 and the A96, uh, uh, you know, relatively close in both cases to your own constituents. 
I think there's there's clear cases to to, to proceed with both of those, those those projects on environmental grounds and and on safety grounds. I mean, I think clearly travel patterns have changed uh, in many respects post pandemic. I think it's right that the projects are, are scrutinised to make sure we're getting the best value for the public for the public pound. But at the same time, you know, it's clear that investment like that needs to go ahead, and certainly. Just to take the A ninety six as an example, you know, we we know it's a it's a long term project, but there are elements of that that need to go ahead and need to go ahead on the, the, the shortest time scale that they can. So I don't necessarily this that's a project that is going to extend beyond the lifetime of any uh, of the current parliament because that's the, the the nature of of road building projects. But in an environmental and particularly on safety grounds and economic grounds, I think there's very strong arguments for continued investment in both these routes. We're almost out of time, folks. But let, let, forgive me, we're almost out of time. Let, let, let's give Jamie Halker Johnson and Richard Thompson, uh, you know, some final thoughts on how how we enhance, grow, improve. The nature of the Scottish economy. Jamie Halker Johnson, first of all, what, what, what are we what are we getting wrong, if you like? What do we need to do? Presumably, we do wish to grow the Scottish economy, or is that being abandoned as a as an objective? I don't know. But Jamie Halker Johnson, what, what what do we do to grow the Scottish economy? Well, I, th- I think the first thing we need to see is a focus on the Scottish economy rather than a focus on some of the other peripheral interests, such as independence, that that um, that unfortunately has um, distracted the Scottish government for far too the SNP for far too long. We need to see a focus on um, Scotland's economy. We need to see support going into businesses, which is based upon actually speaking with businesses. There's a real, real issue amongst um, various different sectors that they're not being listened to by the Scottish government, or that that listening has not been acted on. That they uh, they, they they don't feel that they've got the ear of government. They feel that the government will um, kind of placate them, but won't actually deliver what they need. There's obviously real investment needed in training, and that's something the Conservatives have been. Uh, heavily involved in pushing in our manifesto, but you know some of the some of the more uh, the opportunities that we've seen actually coming through the pandemic, uh, invest, investing in e-commerce, making sure that our businesses are resilient and supported, uh, that we've got uh, that we've got people in the right places to do these jobs. So there's a huge amount of um, areas so that we can improve, and unfortunately that has not been the focus over the last 14 years. Thanks for that, Richard. Yeah, I think you can't dismiss as lightly as Jamie seeks to the, the fundamental decision, the point about who decides and where powers lie and in whose interest decisions can be can be taken. Because I think it shows that when the Scottish Parliament has more powers, it uses them wisely, it uses them for benefit, and we get we get better outcomes. But the main ways we, we take the economy forward, investment in infrastructure, particularly digital infrastructure, not forgetting physical infrastructure. We need to do a lot to decarbonise our economy, uh, whether that's you know, transforming heating, transforming our transportation system and the electric de- decarbonising the, the rail network. We also need to embrace the energy transition, as I said earlier, in terms of uh, particularly keeping the prosperity that we have in the northeast and the talent, the human capital that we have in the northeast, getting that into the hydrogen economy and industrialising the opportunities there. Because I think that the comments that the Prime Minister made when he came up to Scotland the other week about Margaret Thatcher, you know, having a lead on the energy tra- on on climate change with closing the copets, will have sent a chill down people's spine about what that could mean if that appro- same kind of approach were were followed. But we need to embrace that transition positively. Also, we need to do more to diversify our economy. We need to be more of an exporting economy, notwithstanding the burdens that have been thrown in our way through through Brexit. But we need to diversify our export base. We need to internationalise our economy. And we also need to diversify our, our, our domestic economy. In the northeast of Scotland, we've identified areas like adding more value to food and drink, You know, doing more to develop tourism. It's lots and lots of little small things like that, as well as the big strategic issues in order 
to make sure that we've got worthwhile uh, economic, that we're, ma we're making good investments, that we have a strong, diverse, resilient economy, which is equipped for the, the, the climate and global challenges that we're, that we're going to be facing in the decades ahead. Thank you very much indeed, Richard, Jamie, David. Uh, thanks very much indeed for, for joining me today to, to discuss this. A any and all of these things might come up in the programme for government. I think it's the week after next, the, the turn of the, 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 the Scottish Parliament. We're hoping to do uh, in, in just prior to that, just prior to the, to, to the, the September return, uh, intending to do a, a, a programme looking ahead to that. But of course, join me next week as well for uh, an edition of the podcast. For now, from me, Brian Taylor, good luck. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add Herald Pod 2021 to your basket and get instant unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene. 